0: Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Rob Shear. Rob is the founder of Comfort Cases, an organization based in Rockville, Maryland. Well, welcome, Rob. Thank you so much for joining our podcast series. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great, Lynn. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, You're very welcome. I'm very excited about getting to know you a little bit more, as well as your organization. With that in mind, why don't we go ahead and start with the question, how is it that you yourself became involved in the foster care system to begin with?
1: First of all, that is not a badge that I wear with honor. And a lot of people that I speak to throughout the country understand that I personally feel that our foster care system is shattered. But for me, I actually walked into foster care at the age of 12. And at the age of 12, I walked in carrying my trash bag. My life Is a little different than what most people. I'm the youngest of 10 kids. My mother had been married six times, and we lived in and out of every shelter in Maryland, Virginia, and D.C. And at the age of 12, I lost both of my parents, and I felt I was being saved by going into foster care. Little did I know that it would be one trauma after the next. And by the time I turned 18, which was the fall of my senior year of high school in 1984, I aged out. And when I aged out, my foster parents weren't going to be receiving a check any longer. So I became a homeless kid, literally living on the streets of Northern Virginia as I completed my senior year of high school.
0: So you were still in high school when that happened?
1: I was still in high school. So most people don't realize that back in the 70s and 80s and even in the 60s, no matter where you were in transition into your life, once you considered, quote, aged out and the check was no longer coming, you aged out. (laughs) It just so happens I was still trying to complete my senior year of high school. So it was the fall of 1984. And I actually stayed in school, I would hide my trash bag, and I would go to school every single day. I had a job working $3.35 an hour, which was minimum wage back then. And the owner of the taco place that I worked at found out that I was the homeless kid in town, and he would leave the outside bathroom door unlocked so I could sleep there at night. And when I wasn't working my $3.35 an hour job, or if I wasn't in school digging through the lunchroom trash cans, I was sitting in the public library. Because even as a young child, I knew that if I educated my mind, I could educate my future. And being the youngest of 10 kids, my brothers and sisters had already started falling to the wayside. They had already started being the statistics that we see today, where drug addiction and drug overdose and suicide and incarceration, everything that we're seeing today was happening in the 70s and 80s as well.
0: You know, until you said that, it just struck me. You had so many brothers and sisters and you all went into the foster care system,
1: No, I actually was the youngest. And so when I went in, I was 12 and another sister went in, but all my other siblings, they had already either ran away, married and pregnant by 15. I have a brother who's serving life in prison right now. And, you know, so they had already started down that path. When children are raised with no stability, the choices are very slim. And for my brothers and sisters, they felt that even harder. For me, I didn't want to be that kid. I wanted to be a kid that you looked at and said, I love you. And I'm proud that you're my son. See, that's something I never heard as a kid when I was growing up with my biological family. I never remember a picture on the wall. I never remember a Christmas tree or a birthday. And I sure don't remember my mother ever looking at me and saying, I love you. I remember when I was six years old and I was sitting in a front yard of one of the many houses we lived in because we were always moving in the middle of the night because my parents didn't pay the rent or something. But I remember being about six years old and I was sitting in the front yard. And across the street was a man who was throwing a ball with a boy. And I remember thinking to myself, even at that young age, that if I just have that dad or be that boy, and then I knew that that wasn't going to happen. So I had promised myself that when I grew up, that I was going to be that dad. I was going to be that dad that threw that ball with their kid. And that happened. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, hopefully, we can talk a little bit about that. It's interesting, though. I, my younger sister felt the same way. I kind of went the opposite way. I like, I don't want kids. I just chose not to go down that path. You know, each individual chooses for them what's best for themselves. And because of our background, I just decided that I didn't want to. I don't know, take the chance. I wasn't sure exactly what the thinking was when I was really young, but. That's the road that I took. But uh, like I said, my younger sister took the road that you did, and she's a great mother. So, how did you move then from homelessness beyond? So many young people struggle with homelessness when they leave foster care. How did you get yourself out of that?
1: Wow, you're right. And where did I get my grit, is what I call it? You know, for me, what happened was I graduated from high school and I was really homeless then. So when I was going to high school and I was homeless, I really didn't think about it because I had a school to go to every single day for six, seven, eight hours. So for me, it was like trying to separate the two. But when I graduated from high school, it was like, oh my God, I'm really homeless. And so after a couple of weeks of wandering the streets, I decided to join the United States Navy. And I didn't join the Navy because I wanted to protect anybody, let me tell you that much. I joined the Navy because I was scared and I was hungry. And that's what I did. I joined the United States Navy. And the next thing you know, I made something of myself. I came out of the Navy. I became a very successful businessman. I had an office on the East Coast and West Coast. And life was exactly what my community taught me my life should be See as a kid growing up the only thing I ever heard about was the me syndrome where it's me 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 And what more can I get for myself? How big can my house be? How fast and expensive is my car? How much money can I have in my bank? And god help if I actually use the f-word and I mean foster care to someone I used to be ashamed of that. I used to be ashamed to even let people know about it because I was concerned that if you realized that I was from the system and that I was that kid you used to walk by as I would eat out of the trash can or the fact that I'm not educated enough to know the difference between there, there, and there because the system chose not to educate me, then why would you break bread with me? So I literally wouldn't tell people until... Oh my gosh, it's so crazy to tell the story. It was so crazy. It was 13 years ago. I was sitting having coffee one morning with my husband, and we were in the process of adopting a child overseas. And we were watching a Saturday morning news show, and it was talking about kids in foster care. And Reese said, can you explain to me why we're not adopting a kid out of foster care? And I said, because I told you that we'll never talk about that. And he said, you know, Rob, he says, maybe that's one of your problems is that because you've been so embarrassed to talk about it, maybe it's the fact that you don't seem to be able to commit. And he is so smart. He's well-educated, has his master's, his parents just celebrated their 55th wedding anniversary. He grew up in the Midwest, totally opposite than me. And he was right. And so that particular Monday, we went to D.C. Child and Family Services and we said we wanted to adopt. And the woman said, of course, you want a baby. And I said, well, of course. I said, What else would I want? And she says, "She says, well, so does everybody else, honey. And she says, it's going to be at least a two-year wait. She says, but, she says, why don't you consider to foster to adopt? And I said, because I could never do that. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, how could I ever allow a child in my life, and then all of a sudden you're going to snatch it away and give it to somebody or give it back to its bio parents. And Reese looked at me and said, Rob, if we could change a child's life for just one day, don't you think that we're actually doing something with our lives? Damn, he's so smart. I was (laughs) like, I was like, he's right. And so that's, that's what we did. We filled out the paperwork and we waited. And after we waited, you know, about six months went by and all of a sudden the phone rang and it was a social worker. And she said, I know that on your application, you wanted one child under the age of five. She says, but we happen to have a brother and sister and the little boy is two and the little girl is four and they're going to be reunified with their birth mother probably in about six months, but they've had two other placements and they really need a home. And I said, but we only wanted one kid. And she said, but you just got to meet these two kids. Well, that's like taking a kid to a candy store. (laughs) I wanted to be a dad so bad. So immediately, Reese and I said, okay, let's meet them. And so that evening, the social worker arrived at our home. Doorbell rang. I opened the door. And there standing in front of me was the cutest little girl with these big brown eyes and this sad little face. And the social worker was holding this little baby. And I said, I thought you said he was two years old. And she says, he is. And I said, but he looks like a baby. And she says he had failure to thrive and that he was autistic. And the doctor said that he's probably never going to talk or walk. And are you sure you want this one? This one, like he was a piece of clothing. I was just like, so that evening we got to know Amaya and Makai, and the social worker left. And then the next morning she called and she said, so what do you think? And I said, let's do it. And so that afternoon she arrived with both of my kids carrying a trash bag. And I was like, "What?" In the world. And I said to her, I said, are you kidding me? I said, after all of these years I've been out of the system, you still allow kids to carry trash bags? And she was like, well, what should they carry? And I said, how about some dignity? You know, it was just crazy. But then all of a sudden, we're dealing with a four-year-old and a two-year-old who is, you know, special needs. But we were just trying to make it work. And then literally three months later, the phone rang again, and the placement social worker called and said that they had two boys. And they had a six-month-old and a two-year-old. And they were being fast-tracked to adoption because it was the second time they'd been in the system. And they had come in the system with bleeding of the brain, chicken baby syndrome, and three broken ribs. And the birth mother had taken a razor blade and carved into the baby. Just to let you know, she was 12 when she gave birth to my first son and 14 when she gave birth to my second son. She was actually a part of the system. And so, you know, it was such a fail. But all of a sudden, Two more boys arrived at our home, and we literally went from no kids to four kids within three months, all under the age of four.
0: (laughs) That's a handful.
1: That was a handful, and, and especially with the fact that our son, Makai, was special needs. But I'll never forget the very first night when my daughter arrived, the very first night when my daughter was in the tub and all the bubbles were around her. And all you could see was this beautiful little brown face. And I remember saying to Reese, as we stood in the doorway, that it's the happiest day I can ever remember in my life. But I'm so happy to the saddest little girl. And I said, I don't think she's ever going to smile. And we had been shopping that day. And we had picked up, you know, everything she looked at, and she got out of the tub. She put on her new little pink robe, and she walked into her new bedroom. And there, laying on the bed, recently three nightgowns, and she walked over and she picked up one of the nightgowns and she tore the tag off of it. And she turned around and she smiled at me, and I get choked up even thinking about it because I said, "Amaya, why are you smiling?" And she said, "Mr. Rob, I've never owned a new nightgown before. See, that's just not acceptable." It's not acceptable that kids come into a system because of a choice that someone else made, and we can't even give them a new nightgown. But again, we were trying to be a dad to four kids. You know, as the years went by, the birth parents stopped showing up, they stopped visiting. Nobody really cared what these kids were doing, and they were just floundering. See, I truly do believe that every single one of us fall in our lifetime, and I do believe that we as a community should lift each other up, but I also believe that children should not be the casualty of the choices that we make. And we all must understand that life is about choices. See, I had the choice to be drug addicted. I had the choice of being homeless. I had the choice of making decisions that would put me in a dark light. I chose the choice to keep me in a brighter light, to have a future. And I needed to make that choice for my kids as well. So after almost two years of my children just floundering in a system that didn't give a crap about them and they were only a number, we decided to hire an attorney and file adoption. I remember the social worker saying to us, it was the biggest mistake we're ever going to make because we're going to lose and then they're going to take our children from us. And I looked at her and I said, how can I look at my children and say that I didn't do everything in my power to fight for them, to give them a future, to make sure that they understand stability, foundation, and that they are loved. You know, like two years, you should get your crap together and Over a year, not one birth parent visited their kids. They only had one hour a week that they had to show up and be present. And they couldn't even do that. And we expect kids just to sit there and wait for adults to be adults. It wasn't going to happen on our watch. And so we went in for the fight, a fight like we never thought we would have. We hired bonding study experts to fly in from all over the country to do bonding studies with us. We also wanted to make sure that we hired people that would talk about two white gay men raising four black kids and what could that do for them and do for us. We also wanted to make sure that people understood that children need loving parents. You know, the fact that they did not have a mom in the picture and they were going to have two dads did not lack anything of love and the support they needed. And then, We waited for the judge, and we waited for the judge, and the judge ruled. And the judge awarded all four of our kids to my husband and I, and they all four became the sheer children. You know, life was good. My kids were thriving. My kids, as I always say, they're a little bit privileged, and so they went to the best schools and wore the best clothes, and we traveled all over the world. And as I worked my office on the East Coast and West Coast and doing exactly what my community expected of me, which was to buy the big, expensive house so people would walk by and look at it and say, whoever lives there is real successful. And then making sure I bought a really expensive car because I wanted people to stop Mm -hmm. at stop lights and look at me and say, wow, whoever's driving that expensive car is really successful. And then I filled my bank account large enough that I could take you all to Disney World because that's what my community had taught me is that what was important until eight years ago. Eight years ago, as I was sitting in my office, my husband, Reese, walked in. And by this time, Reese had already became a stay-at-home dad. See, a couple years after the adoption, Reese had come home and had told me that he had read an article about a little boy that had fetal alcohol syndrome. See, our son, Mackay, who the doctor said would never talk, had never walk, had actually started walking and talking. But we were told after lots of high medical with children's hospital brain scans, we found out that my son didn't have autism, that my son had fetal alcohol, and that his frontal lobe was never going to develop. And we were told at the age of five, that is probably the best you're going to get from him. I reminded the doctors that he didn't know the shears. We never say never. And so as my husband read an article about a young girl who was in foster care, who also had fetal alcohol syndrome and was placed in a family that lived on a farm. And I said to Reese, oh, my gosh, it's so crazy. I said, look at the little girl now. And he says, here's five farms for sale." And we literally <laughs> bought a farm. We bought a farm <laughs> with, with chickens and goats, a pig named Penelope. But Lynn, I have a 14-year-old son who reads on a fifth grade level and who will walk up to you and say, hi, my name is Makai. How was your day? Kids are Resilient resilient. And eight years ago, I really realized that. So as I'm sitting in my office, Reese walks in and he says, okay, we're ready to plan the yearly toy drive. See, every Christmas we would do this big, huge toy drive. We would get members of our church together, all of our community, my senior staff. We'd set up a big tent in front of Ben's Chili Bowl in D.C., and we'd have the local radio stations and TV stations come, and we would have this huge toy drive, and we would collect thousands of toys for those kids, you know, those kids that we don't like to talk about, kids from foster care. And I said to Reese this one particular day as he came in to plan the toy drive, I said, I don't want to do it. He says, what do you mean you don't want to do it? I said, I don't want to do this toy drive. I said, what are we teaching our kids? Are we teaching our kids that you give a needy kid a toy and it makes everything better? I said, on December the 26th, Reese, we all wake up and go on with our lives. I said, most of the toys that we give out are already broken. I said, are we truly impacting our community? Are we doing what we should be doing, which is leading by example? And he says, what do you want to do then? And I said, I want to eliminate trash bags in foster care. Lynn, he literally looked at me and said, you're batshit crazy. (laughs) And I said to him, that's why you married me. I said, I don't think we can do this. And so what we did is we gathered some members of our church. We gathered all of my senior employees. We gathered some really close people within our community. And then we brought my children in. And then I stood in our training room in Rockville, Maryland, and I told my story. My story of the 12-year-old boy who carried a trash bag, my story of the boy who had actually aged out of a broken, shattered system and became homeless, my story of how I used to stand in the cafeteria and I would wait for all the kids to leave so I could dig through the trash and get as much food as I could because I didn't know if I would eat that day. I told my story and people were shocked. My husband had known my story. He had met several of my siblings, and some of my very, very close friends knew it, but everybody knew that Rob didn't talk about that and that you should never bring that up. See, I truly do believe when you get into a car, the front mirror is really, really big. And the reason for that, the reason that window is so large is because you always should be looking through your future. And the rear view mirror, it's really tiny because very seldom should you look in your past. And that's what I would tell people all the time. But then I decided that I needed to tell my story. I needed to make sure that the kids who were in foster care knew that they were not alone, that they were loved, and that people cared about them. And then I started listing things that I think should go into a comfort case. I felt that every single child deserved to have their own brand new pair of pajamas with a tag on it. I also thought that every child deserves to have their own toothbrush and their own toothpaste, I also believe that every child, when they come into the system, should have their own lotion, their own shampoo, their own conditioner, and their own bar of soap. And if you do not think a bar of soap is that important, when we get to the other side of this pandemic and we all start traveling, I would love for someone to stay in a hotel. I would love for someone to ask for them to leave the bar of soap from the people before you. No one will do that because it's dignity. Every single day, children walk into a home of strangers. They don't even know their middle names. They don't know their favorite colors, but we expect them to get into a bathtub and use a bar of soap that everybody else has used. It's just not right. And then I wanna make sure that every kid gets an activity. Kids who are under the age of 10 get a coloring book and crayons, and kids over the age of 10 get a journal and a pen and pencil set. We then give every kid a book. You know, as an author, I wrote my book, A Forever Family, for only two reasons. Number one, I want you to love it in your mind. Number two, I want you to love it in your heart. But the most flattering thing that you could ever do to a book is pass it on. See, there's no such thing as a used book. It's only a book that's been loved. And we have to understand if we get children to love to read, we can educate their mind and then that educates our future. And then I give every single kid a stuffed animal. I don't care whether you're a newborn or 19, everybody loves a good stuffy. And then finally, every kid gets a blanket. See, my son Grayson was six years old when we started to pack our first case. He's now 13. He said, Daddy, we have to give every kid a blankie. I said, a blankie? I said, you know these kids are not cold, Grayson. He says, I know, Daddy. But every time they wrap themselves up in their blankie, they know we love them. See, Lynn, isn't that what we all want? At the end of the day, we all wanna be loved. We all wanna know that we're wanted, we're not disposable, we're not invisible. And then that led to one case, which led to 500. And in the last eight years, we have delivered almost 150,000 cases to all 50 states, DC and Puerto Rico. The fact that we are a 96% volunteer ran charity, and until two years ago, we were 100% volunteer. But what that tells you is that this is what your community does. If you tell your community about a problem, they will help fix it. You just have to educate them. And By the way, Lynn, all of the things that I thought was important, my big house, my car and all that money, that truly wasn't what my community was trying to teach me. What my community really meant, the three most important things, the three golden rings that we all should try to grab is our family, our family, our community, and then our legacy. See, whether you're black or white or gay or straight or male or female, rich or poor, each and every one of us will be delivered the same exact thing, a dash. We've heard the poem, you see it in our graveyards, the year you're born, your dash, and the year you die. I want my dash to shine. I want my dash to be so bright that my children walk by it and they say, my dad, he just didn't talk about it. He actually did it. And that's how Comfort Cases started.
0: Wow. That is an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing that.
1: Link, you're very, very welcome. But it didn't stop there. So two years ago, Mm -hmm. you know, after my book had come out, I left my banking job as an executive and I became a public speaker and I traveled the country telling my story and trying to empower youth to let them know that they can take the power back. Forgiveness is where it starts. Once you forgive, then you move forward. And two years ago in 2019, I was giving a talk at a local high school in my town. And all of a sudden, a young boy walked up to me and he said, Mr. Shear, will you please sign my book? And I said, of course. What's your name? He said, Alex. I said, Alex, tell me something about yourself. He says, I have nothing to tell. I said, what do you mean you have nothing to tell, Alex? We all have a story. He says, no, Mr. Shear. He says, I'm 18 years old. I've been in foster care most of my life. And my story is going to be just like yours. I'm going to be 19. I'm going to age out and I'm going to be homeless just like you were. You know, I meet thousands of children all over the country, but for some reason, the way this boy said it, it hit me so hard. I said, Alex, you know, that's not the way it has to go. He says, no, Mr. Shear, that's probably the way it's going to go. And I pulled out my wallet and I handed him a business card. And I said, Alex, this has my private cell phone number on it. I said, I want you to call me because we're going to figure this out. Well, that night I went home and took my kids and my husband out to dinner. And I talked about this young boy named Alex and one of my kids said, Dad, we should invite him to dinner if he calls. Let's invite him to our farm. And I said, what a great idea. And the very next day, Alex called. And I said, hey, Alex, I said, my kids are dying to meet you. I said, do you want me to call your foster parents and you come to have dinner with us on our farm this weekend? And he was like, are you kidding? Really? And I was like, yeah. I was like, give me their number. So I called his foster parents and we arranged that I picked them up on that Saturday well, we brought Alex back to our farm and the kids spent the day. That evening, we decided to go out to dinner with Alex. And as my kids sat around the table and talked to Alex, I could see in their eyes that something was changing. Well, that night when we dropped Alex off at our at his foster parents' house, the car was as quiet as I'd ever heard. And my son, Makai, my son, who they said would never talk or never walk, said, Daddy, we have to do something for Alex. I said, I know, buddy. I just don't know what to do. And he says, Daddy... We have to bring him home. I said, what? He says, he has to come home and live with us. He needs a family and we need Alex. And all my other kids were like, dad, Alex needs to be with us. We need a big brother. And literally within less than three months, we petitioned the courts for Alex to come home, to come home to be with his forever family. Alex turned 19. He graduated from high school. He's enrolled in his second semester of college. And last summer, as we're sitting around our farm. Alex looked at Reese and I and said, you know what I want, Pops? I said, what's that, buddy? He says, I want to be a sheer. I said, what? He says, I want to be a sheer. I said, Alex, you're 19 years old. I said, you're never going to leave us. This is always going to be your home, and we're always going to be your parents. He says, I know. He says, but I just want my last name to be the same as my siblings. I looked over at Reese, and Reese said, let's do it. So Lynn, literally less than three months, we'll have finalized the adoption of our fifth kid, Alex, and we oh, could not be more excited.
0: That is amazing. That's wonderful. Thank and you. that was just pure chance. And he he took the chance. He made the decision. He, he chose to come up to you and have you sign his book. Yeah. And sometimes it's luck, sometimes it's choice, and sometimes it's a combination.
1: You're right. You're so, so right about that, my friend. And this is what I remind people. You don't have to know someone to love them. See, I didn't know Alex, but I knew I loved him. I don't know the 438,000 kids that are sitting in our system, but I love them. And I feel that if you can feel love from one human, it can make you stronger.
0: Yes. And I think that's why relationships is the key element in young people succeeding when they leave foster care. And I know that studies show that to have a strong relationship with a supportive adult is probably the most important factor.
1: I agree. I agree 100% with you. 100% with you, that it's all about that relationship building. You know, the fact is, is we all know that kids come into the system with trauma. We also know that kids suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, twice the rate as our combat veterans coming back from the front line. But I also know that we can do better as humans when it comes to our kids. And I repeat that these are our kids. They're not yours. They're not mine. They're our kids. And if we do not take care of them today. Don't worry, don't worry, because tomorrow we will take care of them. And the reason why, the only thing that we have proven is that kids actually go from the system to the penitentiary, the system to the penitentiary. And if we do not start investing in our children, our future will not be bright, my friend, Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. know. And we have the ability to do it. I say this so often. There's only a few things that we could tweak could really make a big difference for these kids. Number one, we have to set them up for financial success. If we're, able to give foster parents a monthly stipend. Why can't we take some of that money and put it in an interest-bearing savings account for these kids when they age out? See, understanding that my son, Alex, who's now 20 years old, and at his 19th birthday, his dad and I gave him a car, and he knows at the age of 20 that if he gets a flat tire, he can call his dad's, and we're going to pay for it and fix it. Kids who age out of foster care don't have that net. We need to build that net for them. And I'm not saying write them a big fat check when they turn 19, 20, 18, or 21. What I'm saying is start allowing them money so they can put down on a car, get an apartment, get their life to where they want it. Number two, open up your education pathways. And I do not mean just pay for tuition. These kids deserve complete wraparound services. That means mental health. That means they need to get help for mental health, healthcare, housing, schooling, therapy, you name it. We need to be there for them and be there for them through the journey. Because guess what? When my son and my daughters are in their 30s, they're still gonna need their dads. And kids who are in foster care need to know that they still can get their community and that we will love them unconditionally.
0: Right. Well, I agree with you. I absolutely agree that there has to be a way to change the system to help these young people be more successful should they have to leave the system on their own. And I love the idea of the the financial support by having some kind of account set up for them. The challenge is, of course, some young people enter the foster system at 17. Some, you know, enter at age five, four, three. So some you have more time to help prepare than others. So I don't know, do you have any thoughts on The young people who enter later in life, like 15, 16, 17 years old, where they might not have a lot of time to set up that kind of financial or even life skills, learning the life skills. How can we support these young people?
1: Well, I truly do believe that, first of all, a child who enters the system between 15, 16, 17 and 18, what a failure we have as a community. You know, first of all, we should be helping that child way before he ever enters the system. Foster care is not the answer. The answer is how do we support the family? How do we keep the family structure together? Foster care should be the last, 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 last resource. And it should be only for kids who are, are physically and mentally abused. That word neglect is very great very great. And what I say all the time is that if you're able to take a kid and put them in a foster home, why can't we take a person and put them in the home to stabilize the house, to teach the parents some parenting skills, and not us disrupt that young boy or young girl? But let's say they're now in the system. Well, guess what? We got double work to do, double work. And I don't mean that we just need to throw a check at them. These kids need to know that they are valued And the first thing we do is one, stop giving them trash bags. Number two, stop calling them foster kids. These are kids in foster care. These are kids. And the fact that we label them immediately, it seems to be okay. It's not okay. These are kids that are experiencing foster care. Number three, we immediately need to deep dive within their mental psyche to find out what's going on within their mind that we can help them figure out. We know that we're not going to figure everything out, but if we can convince that child that he is loved, that he is wanted, that he is worthy for all that's good in this world, we're going to save that child at the end of the day. It's all about investment, my friend. It's all yeah. about investment.
0: Yeah. And I I believe that there is a a big opportunity in expanding and improving how we contact and work with extended family, as opposed to just taking them out of the you know, the parents, father, mother situation. I don't know how much work and effort goes into finding extended family to see if they can step in and help these young people. But I know there's an opportunity there. Talked with Dr. Johanna greeson from University of Pennsylvania, and she's written a book on a process for doing that. And so I just know there's more opportunity to try to keep the young person in the family, even if the parents, if there's drug addiction, if they need time to themselves to get their lives in order and straightened out. How can we get them in with extended family rather than putting them in foster care?
1: You know the fact is is that there's a lot of programs out there. There's the Match program in Florida. There's a new program that's in Ohio and Kentucky and Virginia and even Maryland is starting to try it out where it's almost like an ancestry DNA. It's out there. Again, it's a 3 billion dollar industry that makes money on the backs of kids. We need to start investing in the child. And we do need to start finding birth families for children. And we also need to understand that parents does need a helping hand. But, and there's a big but there, Len, this cannot be a continuing road that a parent goes down because it's not good, healthy, or fair for the child. And we know that. We truly know that. And so the fact is, is that I love when I work with parents who take advantage of all that the system has to offer to better themselves because I'm going to stand there next to them. I'm going to be there cheering them on and let them know that you're going to slip a little bit sometimes, but understand we're there for you because at the end, it's about the kids. It's about how is our future? You know, I sit in our national center at comfort cases and there's days we have kids who come in and I look in their eyes and I think to myself, my gosh, my future is And the reason my future is bright is because they're my future leaders. I believe that there are so many kids in our foster care system who are also our future leaders. And the fact that we need to let them embrace where they're from and help them get where they want to go, I think that our system could really be rebuilt because it is shattered. It's not broke. And broken things, you put super glue on them, they get fixed. Shattered stuff has to be rebuilt. And our foster care system must be rebuilt from the ground
0: up. Mhm. Well, I want to ask you a couple of questions before we run out of time here about your organization comfort cases. Sure. Dig into that a little bit more. How many people volunteer for your organization to get those cases out?
1: Oh my gosh, what a great question. You know, we literally track thousands and thousands of hours, a week at our center with volunteers. And right now we have a waiting list of people who want to come in and pack cases. Our center is open six days a week. We even have evening hours. We have no age restrictions. And, you know, I say this quite often for a father who has a son who special needs. I want to make sure that there's a place for every single person at the table. And that's what recent I have done with Comfort Cases is that we invite everyone to the table because we. Know that the stronger we build our community, and by the way, Len, your community is not your zip code, my friend. It's our human <laughs> race. It's our human race. And the yeah. stronger we build our community, the stronger I know our future will be. So everybody has opportunities. They can visit comfortcases.org. They can find out how they can get involved within their community and how we really can start turning the needle and changing that a child is worth more than a trash bag.
0: Absolutely. And what does the future of comfort cases look like? Where do you want this organization to go down the road? Will you continue expanding what you do or do you see adding on?
1: Well, you know, I would love to see us stop having to do this, but as you and I know, that's True. not going to happen. So I do know that what we are doing is we are, becoming worldwide. We are starting to open up chapters in England and Canada and Australia, even in Brazil. And so we will eventually become a worldwide nonprofit. But my personal goal and understanding that the shears are comfort cases and the comfort cases are shears, but my husband and I, our personal goal is that we want to do as much as we can do for kids who are aging out. You know, I always say to my children, We will never say never to having more kids right now. We're at five and I know there'll be six and seven and eight. And the reason for that is that I know there is another Alex out there that needs my husband and I as much as we need them. You know, we won the lottery with our five kids and we definitely won the lottery with our son, Alex. But I know that my future is going to be how can I improve the lives of kids who are aging out of foster care because they truly are the forgotten souls.
0: Yes. Yes, they face so many struggles. And unfortunately, you know, you're saying you're going worldwide. The issues that these young people in foster care and the ones that are leaving foster care face are pretty much the same. in other countries. It's not unique to the United States.
1: Not at all. Not at all. I literally have spoke to every continent except for Antarctica because the penguins don't know what to do. But every (laughs) continent I've spoke at, and I will tell you that they have the same problem we have. They have failed failed. And we have to understand, first of all, we have to first admit the fact that we failed and then we need to move on. The problem is, is that we won't admit the fact that we failed, even though the statistics show us that the system has failed.
0: Mm -hmm. And what's the common issue then? Is it that we're tackling the problem after the issues at home are too bad?
1: Of course, of course. You know, we're way behind the eight ball when it comes to tackling this situation, but we also have to understand that it's very, very, very important that we as a community start realizing that as a community, we need to do what our forefathers actually built communities to do, and that was to take care of each other. If I have a piece of bread and you're hungry, I should share my bread with you. And if you have a piece of bread and I'm hungry, you should share it with me. We have forgotten along the way why our forefathers built communities. And by the way, it wasn't for us to live in big houses and for our bushes to match. It was for us to make sure that each and every one of us have a better tomorrow than we had today.
0: Mm -hmm. The three things that you mentioned before that are the most important, family, community, and legacy. Often when we think of legacy, we think of our own individual legacy, but we need to think about our community's legacy. And if community is the human race, then what legacy are we leaving as a reflection of who we are? You're right. When we have these young people floundering and struggling the way that they are.
1: No, you're 100% right. We are leaving no future. We are leaving, you know, if anything, we're just leaving another scar of embarrassment. And that's something that we all have to stop. And, you know, as a nonprofit, the one thing that I've learned, and by the way, I come from the profit world. So when I fell into this nonprofit world, I thought it was going to be so different. And I found out it's not, Lynn. I see so many nonprofits that are battling each other. And I always say to myself, gosh, could you imagine that if we all came together? All of us came together. We could solve a problem. But instead, it's all about, again, exactly what the system's about, the dollar, the donor. I remind people all the time, there is plenty enough money to go around, plenty of money to go around. What do you really want to do? Let's solve the problem. Let's get all these nonprofits that are dealing in foster care, basically like you and I've done, Lynn. We have conversations. We throw ideas back and forth. Why? Because you and I both are passionate about bringing change. And that's what the end game is all about, is stop blaming the system, help you and I change the system.
0: That's exactly the road I was going to go down, is how can we, as organizations that care about these young people. How can we work together if the government won't or can't change the system? Because it's so big, you know, it's so hard to change a massive system like this. And I understand it has to change. But in the meantime, what can we do? We can, you and I can talk, we can get together and Zoom with a hundred organizations and we can talk till we're blue in the face. What do we do if we come together as a community, if you will, to to make the change that we're wanting to see?
1: First of all, we have to educate, okay? We have to educate our community about foster children. Children who are in foster care, the community is not educated about them. They think they're bad kids. There's no such thing as a bad kid. It's a kid that needs to be redirected. So that's the first step, education. The second thing is we have to start knocking down doors. And when I say knocking down doors, exactly what I'm doing tomorrow, I am actually in our state capitol, I am zooming in to talk about the lack of funds when it comes to children who are in the system. This is what I'm doing. I'm writing my politicians. I'm calling my politicians. I'm not just standing on a TV set and say, look at me and hear my story. I am literally making the move. And that's what we all have to do. We have to come together. We have to write compelling letters. Tell the impelling stories and start getting people to stand up and listen. And by the way, I say this quite often to people. Once I tell you my story and then you still don't do nothing, then you got a bigger problem than you think.
0: Mm -hmm. I think if we come together as a community, we will get farther with a voice of many than individuals. Now, you're a dynamic individual. I know you get a lot done, (laughs) but- I think if we can somehow create an association, some kind of organization that is a collective of organizations that care about these young people, then we could have a greater impact.
1: I agree. Len, you hit the nail on the head, my friend. I agree 110%. I have been, let me tell you, I troll the Facebook world. I see the number of groups that we have, foster this, foster that, foster this, foster that, foster this. Why can't we just have one group? Why can't we all have the same solid goal, which is to improve the lives of children in the shattered foster care system? why do we all feel like we have to have our own soapbox? We all can support each other and support each other's missions and stories, but be together as one. I don't get it. I don't get it. You know, but at the same time, Lynn, I'm probably the most disliked of all of them because I talk about it. (laughs) <laughs> I, I I talk about it. I call it out when it needs to be called out. Because the fact is, is that we should not do this for ourselves. We should be doing this for the future of our generation of children in the system that are being left to the wayside.
0: And it becomes a generational issue because it's a cycle.
1: Of course. Of course. It's a huge cycle. It's a huge cycle.
0: That's one of the things that Aging Out Institute that we want to do is to try to create this community. And I'm sharing it here first. (laughs) We've been thinking, how do we start? How do we bring people together? Because you can build an association or a membership. And if people don't believe there's value in that and just getting people to chat with each other is difficult, then they won't stick with it. So what we're going to be doing starting later this year is we're going to create a repository where organizations around the country and outside of the United States can share documents. It's a starting point, mind you, where they can come in to this shared community space and share documents that are helpful to them, say a mentor checklist or a training guide or something. And let's start with something that could be really helpful in the moment with organizations, new organizations, existing organizations. We can start creating conversation around those documents, but it's a starting point. And I think as we start coming together around this item of value, we can start building out other ways to communicate with each other. So that's one of the things that we are working on starting this year.
1: I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it.
0: Well, thank you. (laughs) We do too, and we're really looking forward to it. We're researching platforms right now that will be able to enable us to do that smoothly.
1: That's amazing. That is so awesome. Well, you know what? Count me in, my friend. Count me in. All
0: right. (laughs) I will. So that's something that, you know, I agree with. We need to come together. We need to knock down those doors. And I think we're siloed so much because of, well, geography, funding, right? State funding silos, that's territorialism, I hate to say, partly because of funding. And, you know, also you just don't know who else is out there. They don't know where to go to have these conversations. So like you said before, it's an awareness issue too.
1: It very much is. It very much is. And that's how we have to start. It's up to each one of us to start educating our community that, you know what, we're some really great people, by the way. We might have had Foster in front of our names for many, many years. We are definitely some great people. And that means that there are some great kids that are coming up the pipe as well. So we need to be there for them.
0: Yep, yeah, absolutely. Well, let me ask you this real quickly. I know we're at the end of our time. If somebody wanted to donate to your efforts there at Comfort Cases, how can they do that?
1: Well, first of all, Len, thank you so much, because you are right when it comes to everybody needing funds and stuff. But you can all go to comfortcases.org. As little as $10 a month literally can take a trash bag out of the hand of a child. And people don't realize how inexpensive it is. I have a lot of people who say to me all the time, well, I don't have any money. And I'm like, you have the most valuable thing there is. And they say, what's that? And I say, it's your time. Your time is so valuable. Give your time. Find a local group home. Play some basketball. Teach one of these amazing humans how to sew and cook and balance a checkbook. We all can do what we can do. But the thing is, we all have the ability to do. So please visit comfortcases.org and see how you can help change the needle.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you very much.
1: Lynn, thank you.
0: You're welcome. Thank you. I really have enjoyed speaking with you, Rob. It's been great hearing your story and your perspective on this. And I do wish you all the best with your efforts there with Comfort Cases and everything else that you're doing.
1: Thank you, my friend. And I can't wait for us to talk again.
0: I feel the same way. Well, for those who have listened to the end of this podcast, thank you very much. As you know, we put these out every couple of weeks or so. So keep checking back to agingoutinstitute.org slash podcasts to find our latest and greatest podcasts. And I wish you all the best until the next time we're together. Thank you.